Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. This is a good news segment. You know, once upon a time, I remember sitting down with my amazing, amazing dentist and having a conversation about exposure due to dental fillings. I remember this like this was yesterday. And it was as if I was talking to someone who was sharing something that basically very few people knew. But then we started to think about this. We started to think about what is the risk to Americans for toxic mercury exposure? And then it kind of fell off the radar, but nope, not today. Thank you to Dr. Mark Geyer and, and David Geyer joining me here today because they are the authors of Dental Amalgam Fillings and Mercury Vapor Safety Limits in American Adults. And why is that important? Because this is not something that can fall off the radar. The, the risk, the dangers, we have not talked about them enough. And by the way, Time has changed to make this easier than ever, ever to take action on this. Welcome to both of you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, look, I don't know if you guys recall this or not, but I do remember sitting in the chair and having my amazing Dr. Schwartz have the conversation with me. And then I don't remember any other dentist thereafter doing that. And it's not because the risk went away, is it? No, in fact, at, at sometimes they were under penalty if they discussed it with you from their dental society, right. unfortunately. Um, now they, they try to shove it under the rug, even though there's a regulation that before you place an amalgam, you have to tell the patient that you're going to do it. But they don't explain to the patient that a silver filling isn't silver. It's silver color because it's mercury. And amalgam doesn't describe it at all. Amalgam means a mixture of metals. It's, it's mercury we're talking about. And most people, if you told them they're going to put mercury in their mouth, they wouldn't have it done. But if you just tell them I'm going to put in amalgam, they agree to it. It's really sad. It is. And, you know, thank you for really reminding us of that, because you, I don't think the public is aware of that. And if, if we leave things up to the public to really dig down and find out about things like this, I mean, in the scheme of things today, um, they're not aware of the conversation. They're also not aware that there are options. Um, I want to I want to go through the the idea of the. I can't even be. I can't even believe we're still even doing this. To be honest with you, I mean, right? You know, I I think David, you're sitting there, and I'm just trying to tell you that are are we still like are dentists still doing this? Are dentists still using mercury? They certainly are, and. It would be nice to stop it. We spoke at the United Nations, and they're going to ban it. Uh, they've banned it as of a certain date. But in the United States, it's still being used. The older dentists only know how to do that. And some of the younger dentists are being trained in it, too, even though 58% uh, of Americans have amalgam. 
in their mouth, and mo many of them are over the, safe, the government safety limits for mercury. I don't understand how the government can allow them to do something that's over their own safety limits. Yeah, it, it's kind of mind boggling because we see so many other things where the government is stepping in and saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't use this, don't do that. Uh, but, you know, part of the conversation today is to make people aware. And it goes beyond your average everyday awareness. And that's what's so important about this. Um, you know, when I think about this, David, Mark, when I think about this, can you can you share with everyone today what the study found? Can you just, well, just let's just get people really up to date here, because I think if they hear what the study found, they're going to be like, what? Well, basically, what we've been able to show is that when you have an amalgam filling, even if it's a single one, let alone many, which is what most people have, they release mercury vapor. So every time a person breathes, they're being exposed to mercury vapor. And as, my, as Dr. Geyer mentioned, many, if not most, people that even have just a single filling that has mercury in it are over the safety limits. The, the number is staggering. There's 91 million Americans that have at least one amalgam filling. Furthermore, we've now done research linking amalgams directly with human disease. We've shown that the risk of asthma is increased fourfold with amalgam fillings. The risk of arthritis is increased fivefold. And there are a host of other chronic diseases, neurological, kidney, uh, other immunological diseases that may have a... Uh, may be related to amalgam fillings. So this is something that is acutely important to Americans, both from ongoing exposure and for very real risk of very long-term chronic debilitating mm -hmm. diseases. So let's talk a little bit about this idea and what happens with mercury toxicity, because there are symptoms and there are signs, and yet they could be masked under some other kind of thing going on with the body. But there are very specific things that people can look out for, right? To really say, well, wait a minute, maybe it is the, maybe it, this mouthful of mercury fillings really does have something to do with it. Doctor, what are some of the symptoms? Well, as, as David mentioned, there are all sorts of diseases, not unwellness. It damages basically every organ system in the body. But it's complex because, you know, you, you have amalgam fillings, mercury fillings, but you eat fish. There are other sources. Mm. But this the first time we were able to demonstrate with good epidemiological uh, effect that these, these diseases, the two that we mentioned, clearly are related. The risk of developing are clearly related to um, mercury fillings. The, the most important thing for most people, I would say, to be cognizant of is having the amalgams. Having amalgams puts you at risk of mercury poisoning. That's what being over the safety limit means. So that the, the best way for people to take steps to prevent, ameliorate the damage is to re stop the exposure, which means removal or telling the dentist that, that they don't want any more silver fillings, amalgam fillings, mercury fillings in their mouth. Yeah, yeah. Look, I love what you both have done. And I love that you are taking the time and coming out here and talking about this. I love the fact that you are bringing a, what some people called a passe topic because they think it was soft. I'm just, just telling you, the average person really doesn't realize 
that this is not solved. They, they, they just think that, oh, okay, but it is serious. I was looking at the report you, you, that, that you both put, put out here. I was, I was, I have to tell you, I'm kind of aware and I was shocked. Uh, 91 million, million adults, not 90. I mean, the numbers to me are staggering. I'm, I can't believe I'm even having a conversation with you in this year about this. What is it from your each of your perspectives? Now, this is a personal opinion I'd love to have. What is it that stops people from taking the action? Are we not explaining the significance of this enough? Is there not enough from the government saying that you got to do something? Well, what, what is it where people, if they knew this, they would rush to get this done? Well, the government puts out a statement that they think that malvern fillings are dangerous and uh, should be avoided, but they put it out very quietly. Yes, they, they do. They don't blast it everywhere. The, the, they, they don't want to, um, you know, have the wrath of the dentists upon them because uh, there's still lots of dentists placing malvern fillings. And then there's the issue also of the removal, which is what people inevitably, as I said, will want with this. Removing amalgams is not a simple procedure. The problem is that if you take a drill and you go and drill out the amalgam, you, you get exposed as the patient to mercury, the dentist is exposed to mercury, the whole environment is, is cluttered with mercury from amalgams. So it's very important that safe mercury amalgam removal techniques be used to prevent all of that kind of exposure. Mm. And there are fewer dentists out there that are trained in this kind of safe mercury amalgam removal. And they don't like to admit it, and I can understand it. They did not sign up to harm people. I'm sure that they yeah. want to help people. And now they have to admit that what they've done in the past is harming some people. And that's, that's not easy to admit. And also we have this big problem that they're close to one billion fillings out there. We're never going to get them all out, even if yeah. we haven't. I was shocked at the numbers. Can I ask you, you both on a personal level of question? And then, uh, David, I want to go to you on a, a, you know, from a research perspective. I want to know, what was it that you were seeing? What was in your heart to say, we need to take this on uh, and we need to really show the public? David, what did, come on, what was in your heart here? Well, our, both uh, Dr. Geyer and myself's involvement in this is almost tangential, meaning that we, do research on many different kinds of human diseases. Um, we've even researched a lot about mercury from other sources like mercury and vaccines. Mm -hmm. And this issue about amalgams was something sort of, as I said, off to the mm -hmm. side, it just we became involved in it almost by coincidence and started looking at it. And as we started studying it more and more, we applied our vast experience mm -hmm. of studying other environmental toxins to mercury, from fillings, and as we did it more and more, the evidence has become more and more overwhelming that the exposure is so great, the risk of disease is so great that it's really carried us mm -hmm. as, a, as a public health imperative to educate people as to what is happening. Mm -hmm. We are two people that are dedicated to try to help people through medicine. We don't get funded big time by the NIH. We have very little funding. We, we, we do it on our own because we want to help. 
Yeah, it's very clear to me. Um, I know these are really short interviews. And so let me thank you very much. But it's really important that we give information out where people can find the study, how they can find out more. Because when I looked at the details of the study, and I looked at the numbers, I just didn't, I thought there were like an army of people that did this research, because the results are so powerful. How can they find out more? Uh, more information is available about our research and other researchers who are looking at this from a website, which is thepdha.org, as well as uh, people listening can find uh, a dentist who can safely remove their amalgams through iaomt.org. You can actually search on the website and find local dentists who can safely remove uh, mercury amalgam uh, from the mouth. Thank you both so much for joining us here today. Uh, for all of you out there, more information, please go look and please look at this for your children. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome to our incredible uplifting news segment. Today's conversation with Karen, Karen Collins. Assistant Vice President in American Property Casualty Insurance Association. This is so important. Here's what she is bringing to the table. First of all, years and years of experience, understands what it means to be in a trade, an industry that has to take everything into consideration. And what right now is one of the hottest things on our mind, especially if you're living where we are in the West Coast. It is wildfires. Today, how do you live with wildfires? This is the conversation you want to listen to. Karen, great to have you here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much. So happy to be here as well. Look, um, I want to get down to some of the more common things that people should be aware of. Now, this morning, before we even got online, I was saying to you that two of my people, you know, I had to let them leave the office yesterday because in an office complex that has no windows open, just 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 to mention a, a thing, right? No windows open. <clears throat> Smoke in our office complex. Now you can't see it. You can smell some of it, but some of the symptoms are devastating. But what we're talking about here today is the more obvious things. Tell us about from your perspective. What is the top three things that you're most concerned about that people should know about? Absolutely. There are really three key top things. Number one, most important, five-foot zone. Mm. We want people to be creating a five-foot ignition-resistant zone around your home. Clear that debris off your roof and gutters and remove all those combustible items like vegetation, furniture, or firewood piles from within those first five feet of the house, including what you might normally store under your deck, absolutely critical. Number two, update your policy. Construction costs are way up. So make sure that you call and verify you have the right kind and amount of insurance coverage in place in the event you have a loss. And then number three, home inventories. If you do have a loss, this is invaluable. Create a home inventory using your phone by taking a video of each room in your home and saving that footage virtually. These are the core top three, and we can talk about these in more detail. Now, look, uh, before we go for too long, I want to make sure we're giving out the website several times, and there is a website that you have 
um, for for people to get some information. Let's give that out right now so people can get there. Yep. Yeah. Our website is apci.org backslash wildfire. So again, apci.org backslash wildfire. We have a tremendous amount of resources of how to do the mitigation to make your home more wildfire resilient, as well as steps on after the fire, what the recovery process might look like and how to do a home inventory, those specific steps. There's a lot of great resources there for more scientific detail on, on mitigation there's actually some wonderful research that's come out from the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. Their website, wildfireprepared.org, yeah. is excellent on the very specific how-tos and, and why you want to do those specifically so you understand the reasoning behind it. And they've got a great program they launched in California that's going to soon gonna expand into all the other states that are exposed to wildfire. But because their, their research and their tips are all available online, that's an excellent source to, to really educate on the specifics of we can all do mitigation, but there's a right way to do it that's yeah. most meaningful. I want to ask you a couple of questions that may seem for a lot of people more administrative, but they're really important. Um, one of the questions that, you know, those of us that have been in either floods or wildfires or been in situations like this, there's so much we don't know. And one of the questions mm -hmm. that comes up is when do I call my insurance company? Do I call them now? So let's talk about the importance of number one, getting your insurance up to date, because you don't know mm -hmm. sometimes you get things in the mail, Karen, right? And you don't even read them. Yep. And so calling the insurance company and just say, how am I doing? Where am I? What could I do better? Right? Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to end up having a loss and be caught by surprise in that critical moment. You want to have a plan in place where you've already done that review and you know what you're going to have available to you from a recovery standpoint, especially now that inflation is so high and pushing up the cost to reconstruct. So have that conversation ahead of time. Typically, we recommend having an annual insurance checkup. You know, our homeowner's policies are a one-year policy. And with each renewal, you might mm. pick up the phone and just review that. Yeah. But with inflation so severe right now, you don't want to wait for that next renewal. You actually want to go in and just make sure that your coverage is keeping pace with these costs so you don't end up with an, being underinsured. Um, there are specific things you should be talking to your insurance company or agent about, such as what are the limits you have, what are the types of coverage you have in place, so whether it's replacement costs or additional, or I'm sorry, actual cash value, which takes depreciation into account. Replacement cost is, is the better way to go. It gives you um, more funds to replace everything at the current market prices. Um, there's other optional coverage features that you can add to make your coverage more robust. For example, there is an extended replacement cost endorsement most insurers offer. So when you think when a big wildfire event happens, everyone's trying to rebuild at the same time. So that demand surge for materials and, and skilled labor, that further can push the cost up. So an extended replacement cost endorsement can give you an extra layer cushion of coverage to help absorb that. Separately, building code and ordinance coverage. A lot of states are passing new building codes, whether they're requiring indoor fire sprinklers or they're doing green energy codes requiring solar panels. A lot of these we don't think about, but they can add to that cost as well. So if you're having to rebuild to a newer code, you know, a lot of us in the West, we have older homes that have been built decades ago. And so to bring these up to date, that's additional coverage that can really help offset some of those added costs. And then also additional living expenses. 
because of these supply chain constraints, because of all the natural disasters we're having, reconstruction is just taking longer. And that means you're going to be out of your home longer. And the costs mm-hmm. that you incur while you're you know, out of your home waiting to rebuild, those can add up. And so your additional living expense coverage helps to pay for that. But those are areas that you might want to consider increasing limits, at least for right now, mm-hmm. knowing the current pressures that we're seeing. So those are some of the conversation questions you want to focus on in advance of the fire. Oh, uh, I had a question that came in prior to this interview, and I want to throw it out there for you. Um, The question Mm -hmm. that came in from one of our listeners, because we talked about doing the show, was what do you, sorry, what do you suggest about homes that have gas that supply their heat and other things? Should we turn the gas off at the source? That's a really great question. Yet what they're asking is, okay, let's say I've got gas coming from the city to my place, not propane, but I got the city. And so I'm running pilot lights, other things, who knows what's in here, right? So they're asking, is it advisable if you know that there is a wildfire in your area to turn that gas off? That's a great question, isn't it? I don't even know that answer. You know, it is a great question. I don't know if I have an exact answer because it might depend on the infrastructure and how exposed it is. But this is where I think wildfireprepared.org has some really great resources on here are the steps to do to ready your home just before you evacuate. And there are some really great lists that are evacuation preparation steps. So I'm hesitant to put a solid answer on that without knowing the specifics of the property. But yes, there there are things you want to be closing your windows and your shutters and closing the flume on the fireplace that would otherwise leave the house exposed, not just to fire embers entering, but the smoke damage. Unfortunately, that Mm -hmm. that smell of the smoke and that penetration can be another um, concern that as you return to the home, um, there's a lot of nuances. So there are some checklists that you can actually leverage on on what you should do as you're preparing to evacuate. And, And that's a great question. Um, yeah. I'll also just mention with, with the financial preparedness, one other thing, and I don't recall if I mentioned already, when you're reviewing your policy coverage, just make sure that you have accounted for any changes to your home recently. The pandemic had such a high popularity for home improvement projects. People are at home. They want to do that kitchen upgrade they've been putting off for a while. They might yeah. have built on an extra space for work from home. And we don't think about these little things that might have actually changed what coverage we might need. So Make sure if you've done any home improvement projects, don't let those get neglected. Make sure they're reflected so that that coverage is, is there as well. Awesome. Um, look, I know we've talked about a lot. I want to give out that website again. And for those of you out there, I, I, I'm going to give you the, the website. where It's, it's www.apci.org slash wildfire. Now, wait a minute, because you know what that stands for? It's A like American, P like property, C. Ready? Casualty. Casualty. Yep. Gotcha. Uh, I for insurance. Yep. Okay. So, the, so yep. those of you out there, apci.org slash wildfire. You're going to get a lot of information right exactly. there. Exactly. Uh, look, we talked about a lot, but I have a funny feeling I've left some things out. What other tips you got for us? <laughs> you know, again, with the financial preparedness, make sure that loved ones, especially those in the retirement years, have maintained insurance. When that mortgage gets paid off, sometimes they don't feel that they need it and they don't want to be caught after a fire without a way to rebuild your home. So check in on those level ones. Also, if you're renting, these tips all apply to you as well. Make sure that you have coverage available. Often 
Um, auto insurers will bundle your rental insurance co coverage with an auto insurance policy for really affordable prices. So don't, don't be caught without that um, financial protection as well. Wow. Karen, thank you so much for all of this. Um, I, the question that I think comes to mind is we've gotten pretty, we've gotten better at this. I mean, the wildfires or fires have caused every industry that is related to this to really take a deeper dive on how they can make people more aware and more protective, right? I mean, isn't this part mm -hmm. of this now where we have apps now, we have so many things. That's game changer when it comes to wildfires, isn't it? Absolutely. There's such a growing amount of attention on the issue of wildfire because we've seen such a, an aggressive increase in fires, really, especially in the last five years. Um, this year, over 50,000 wildfires have charred over 6.8 million acres so far, which is already an above average year. Yeah. There's been 94 large fires continuing to burn in eight states, with the most active in Montana, Washington, yeah. Oregon, and California. So it, it, this is an issue that's now a year-round risk. There's no more wildfire season. It is year-round in yeah. most of all these Western states. And that risk is growing with more homes in these wildland urban interface areas where communities meet, you know, natural vegetation. And with, with hotter and drier temperatures, this, this worsening drought that we're seeing, the risk is only continuing to grow. So yeah. we really need to adapt and learn to live with wildfire now or these losses are going to continue to get larger and, and more catastrophic and costly. And, and that is not what anybody wants to see. And so we're really focused on not just helping um, our policyholders financially prepare, but we want communities and families to be safe. It is about safety. And this is really about reducing that risk and the chance of having a fire so that you are more protected and, and don't have to go through that devastation. Wow. Thank you so much. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. You've been listening, but are you watching? Tune in to your favorite shows on the Transformation Talk Radio Facebook page. We stream live video podcasts every day. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our fabulous good news segment. Today, joining me here today is Brooke Roner Zog, Vice President for the Faith and Media Initiative at Radiant Foundation. Now, what is the Faith and Media Initiative? But more importantly, why is it? There's a very important reason that we're having this conversation today, but I brought somebody on who's not only passionate about it, but understands the big picture and the individual's journey. Brooke, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And I love your first question. Uh, the Faith and Media Initiative is a new program from the Radiant Foundation designed to hopefully create some important change in culture by bringing faith and media institutions two groups that we believe to be vital to society, vital to people's individual lives, to create and collaborate and ensure a more accurate, balanced depiction of faith in society. We believe that that is a tremendous, uh, important facet of a large group of people's lives, and it is our, our goal that both institutions, I believe that both institutions will be stronger and better by by working together and, and, and serving their members and their readers in a more meaningful way. And so we commissioned a study to look at what's happening in the market and the way that faith is being depicted to kind of inform how we go forward and how what change needs to happen to diminish some of the polarization that 
I think we as Americans feel in many facets of our life today. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is, and the reason I'm really excited to talk to you is, you know, anytime we see an initiative like this, or especially in the evolution of this network for a 20 year period, we're very clear that one of our new channels is going to focus on capturing the essence of, let me just call it the landscaping culture of where faith and media it needs to evolve to. But let me ask you this question, and we've got a lot of information to give people, especially really blown away by the study that was done by you all. And we're going to talk about that. Great. But here, here's the question. I know for myself, anytime I dig my teeth in something and I really want to get to the bottom of it, or I really want to get to answers of it. Anytime that happens, there's usually an it, something that has shown up, something that is really said to you, Brooke, wow, not only do we need to take a closer look at this, but we need to do better. What was your it? What showed up that said, we have to look at it and we have to make changes? What did you find? I loved finding that of the 18 countries, six languages, all the world religions, uh, and, and people who were not religious, 82% of the people that, um, that completed this global survey identified as religious, spiritual, or a person of faith. Mm-hmm. And they said that there is it's a huge market, a huge global market, and that they identified a major growing gap between coverage of religion and what their lived experiences are, that it's not an accurate reflective depiction of their lived experiences. And also what was exciting and the big what was that when we interviewed in-depth editors and journalists, that they agreed that religion and faith was being marginalized for a variety of factors. And I think what was exciting was to identify, yes, there's a market, yes, there's a need for more and better. And there were a lot of insights on how those changes can be made um, to, to strengthen both media and faith institutions and to strengthen society with a more balanced, um, less polarizing conversation about something that's so important to a lot of people. You know, I know a large part of people in the study, I think 60, oh, 60 plus percent globally said that high quality content on faith and religion is needed in their respective countries. The question that I'm asking is, because I live right now, I've lived on the East Coast uh, in the greater New York area, and now I live in Seattle. And where I live now is we are considered, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have the, we're probably considered the least religious place in the United States and the most spiritual. Now, when somebody hears that for the first time, it really makes your head stand up. Because really, it points to a disconnect of a group of people, so to speak, that don't feel they're being heard. So let's talk about this idea that 63% need better representation of faith and and religion in the media. What are they looking for? Because this really is so important, especially for us, as we are creating our new channels for 2023. And one of them will be a channel uh, that really is going to include people whether it's like you said, faithful, religious, or spiritual. But what did they say? What are they saying in terms of, we need quality content? What are they looking for? Great question. That was the best part of this was that they gave us insights on what they want. And so we're not guessing, not just we want more, but what they want. (laughs) They're looking for high quality content. And what they define high quality content is diverse stories. You touched on it. Seattle has... Spiritual. I think that there's also probably surprisingly 
more people than we know who are religious, but religion, yep. talking about religion has become very taboo. Mm-hmm. And so when you, and, and also when the narrative that media covers perpetuates stereotypes, for example, 78% felt like um, faith stereotypes needed as much or more attention as race and gender. And another percentage talked about the, the fact that um, they said 61% felt that the media perpetuates faith-based stereotypes rather than addressing and protecting against them. So when that's the case, people who have those ideals feel like they can't talk about it. And for those who are spiritual, who feel like they can talk about it, are those stories being reflected in a diverse and nuanced way that's compelling and interesting? I think also for Seattle, you have a very, very diverse population of people coming from other parts of the world, from Afghanistan, from variety parts of the world where religion is actually a misunderstanding of religion has made played a major role in their lives. And so in, to be able to understand, to have empathy, to connect with others, to know and understand what those lived experiences are, and media is the custodian oftentimes for that public square discourse and conversation. So I think there's a great opportunity to diminish polarization and diminish misunderstandings or bad feelings by shedding light on and understanding the various nuanced stories of how faith and spirituality and religion or faith traditions play out in people's lives. Um, you know, I want to I want to ask you this question because I think I read it as part of your study uh, here, and you know, I, I'm, and I don't want to misquote it, but I read that there was uh, comments or anecdotal information that represented, you know, things that talk uh, about spirituality or religion, but there's also a fear around talking about it, and in this polarization. Can, can we talk about that? For, because there are going to be people here that are saying, I don't know what you mean by polarization, but let's talk about polarization. Is it that we're not including the multitude and diversity of what people bring in terms of faith, religion, and spirituality? Or is the polarization something presented by media that says, if you're not this, you're pretty much not anything? Which, which is it? Or maybe something I did not mention. I think it's probably a combination of the two, but Mm -hmm. I think what we see in the media landscape, particularly in America, is that uh, religion has been very politicized and where Mm -hmm. they're talking again. One of the things media talked about is the need for clicks for controversy and and what's sensational and what gets interest in readers to to, to click or to read on. And so I think that the the extremes of religion are are represented or faith, but there's a, a significant, massive middle ground of people that are not being represented or not being talked about. And so I think that division, what I mean by polarization is division or groups are separated and siloed and don't see their commonality or their shared interests or their shared experiences, regardless of what their religion or belief or spirituality is, that those stories aren't being told. And so it's creating less cohesion, less connectedness, when really Mm. faith has a tremendous ability to connect people by shared experiences and shared values that that transcend what religion or what faith or what spirituality group you, you belong to. You know, I, this is a very important conversation. You know, this is my show is 20 years old. The network is 2009. And one of the first things we did out out of the gate, which we were excited about, I was especially excited about is help produce a show called interfaith radio. And that show consisted of Rabbi Ted, um, Pastor Bob and Brother Jamal. And while it was extremely popular here and globally, 
by the time that took wind in other parts of the countries, people didn't understand our, our, our country. People were really looking like, what is that? Is that Rabbi Ted is Jewish, Bob, Pastor Bob is Christian, and Brother Jamal, what is that, Muslim? See, we didn't look at it like that. Is that what people want more of? Do they want more diversity in their content? I I'm, I really would love to know something about yes. what's happening in media yes. is not working. More diversity. It's more diversity, more diversity in education, right? So what does these stories mean? What are we, there's a gentleman that's been working with us who talked a lot about, he's a Sikh and looks to people who are uninformed and misunderstand uh, the difference between Sikh or Muslim. And to him, he has brown skin and wears a turban. Mm. And so he's perceived as Muslim. And when 9-11 happened, what that implication meant for him in his life, there is a cost to not representing the diverse perspectives and the diverse views and that there are so many amazing Muslims who are doing tremendous good in the world and contributing to society. What are their values and what are those values? How are those values alike and similar or akin to a Jewish community and a faith community? And I think also for a lot of people who are not religious, who are not spiritual, to know and understand the role that faith and religious institutions play to the stability and strength of communities and society, the services they provide for people who need help and care, the volunteer work, the health care, um, and, and, and the transformative nature that that plays. So I think, um, back to your point about the show, I think diverse stories to not only tell uh, what's happening in those, in those faith groups, but just also educating and understanding what that means. And I think that that brokers and gives people conversation to have more conversations. There are people that I work with who may be Muslim or Jewish, but I've been believed by the narrative that talking about that is taboo in this society, that you check faith and politics at the door. Um, and faith is something that can actually connect people and bring them together. So brokering those conversations is tremendously valuable in strengthening human relationships, but also restoring trust for people and their relationship with both religious institutions and media institutions both who bring tremendous value to society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, one of the things I, I it's just a really short interview, so I'm, I'm trying to get all the questions in. First of all, let's make sure people know how they're going to find out about the study that I keep referencing, but also how they find out about your organization, your sure. role, and what you're, you're doing as change agents here. Right. So the, uh, in the, the best way to see the data that's been created by HarrisX is index.faithandmedia.com. And a way to learn more about the larger Faith and Media initiative is to go simply to faithandmedia.com. Again, where we're trying to bring both institutions together to collaborate and create um, more meaningful conversations. But I think also for people of faith, what we would ask is that they be more authentic and willing to share their lived experiences and not with the goal of telling somebody they need to be, why theirs is better or more or different, but to, Mm -hmm. to let people know that this is an important part. And I think that that, uh, shared conversation um, changes the narrative and gives people the idea that this is not a taboo topic, mm-hmm. but something that is actually transformative and, and the, with the ability to connect rather than divide. Yeah, totally agree. I, you know, look, I, I listen to so many things. Um, I have one particular person I listen to that is of a faith that I don't practice, but I still listen to him because he's the most positive message on the planet. I have another friend that listens to the same pastor who actually cannot listen to the last part of his clothes as he recommends that everybody join a faith-based church. And so 
you know, what people are doing is they're saying, I love his message, I'm going to listen to it, but I don't really consider myself of that religion, but I love the message. See, is that what we're trying to say here? Is that what that's we're okay, trying to say? That's okay, isn't it? Right? That's, that's okay, isn't it? Yes, it is absolutely okay. That's my point. You see, the minute we try to tell people, right, this is okay and this is not, isn't that the paradox you're talking about a bit? And I think that all of us would be better served if we can listen and learn from and take the pieces that we believe to be valuable. And, and we're human beings with a conscience and we get to choose, right? What yeah. are the pieces that I want to take that are valuable to me? What can I learn from and be informed? Or can I have better empathy and understanding for where that person is coming from? I don't have to agree with everything that they, that they ascribe to, yeah. but, to, but to say that I can't grow or benefit or gain from their experience and their message is, is diminishing your ability for growth and, and as a human being. Absolutely. There's no question about it. You know, and and first of all, I know this is a short interview. There's so much more I would love to talk with you about, Brooke, but your work is really pivotal. It's pivotal because what it represents to me is, you know, when when people walked this earth thousands of years ago, they walked in the spirit of love. They didn't walk in the spirit of, well, I'm going to walk in the spirit of love and love you, but you have to be part of this particular origin. And what you're doing is saying, why can't we have a conversation? You know, why can't we include conversations about faith-based stories? Why, why aren't we doing that? Now, I will tell you this. You're going to see our, our faith-based channel. Right now, the vote is to call it God Talk. And, you know, that representing all aspects of a higher power. But we're going to have the public decide what to call it. And we're going to have our listeners decide what to call that Love channel. Love it. <laughs> I mean, because what do I know? Love I know it. nothing. I love it. I <laughs> love it. I can't tell you I how much it. I love this. I'm so glad you did this. Please, again, give out to your organization. And then one last question. I would love to know your personal message. I'd love to know what you want to leave us with. That actually makes me emotional. But my personal message is that faith has been a transformative part of my life. It has informed everything that I do. Mm-hmm. And I decided to join this initiative and program because I believe humanity and, and individuals um, gain meaning and purpose and, and make meaning out of oftentimes wonderful parts of life and challenging parts of life, um, the tremendous good thing can be gained. And I think deep connection and understanding and, and affinity for others can be gained by fostering these meaningful conversations. And, and I hope that what can be conveyed today is that the Faith and Media Initiative is not here to villainize media or faith, but to understand and I recognize that, that there's an opportunity to make improvements and to identify what solutions, services, and conversations need to happen to be a facilitator or a catalyst, great catalyst for change. And um, I'm doing this because I believe it's tremendously important and I care about it deeply and have been thrilled to hear in private conversations and in large conversations the interest, appetite, and genuine desire for this to succeed and move forward. Absolutely, because we do all want one thing, don't we? We want to create a better world. We want to create a better world through whatever version of spirituality you want to bring forward. We also want to understand so we're not polarized and we're not hating. And what you're doing is opening up a a very, very giant door for all of us. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me, Dr. Pat. I appreciate being on your show. Yeah, And, and, and folks, we're going to take a short break, but I'm telling you, you are going to pick the name of of exactly the channel, the media channel, the TV version, the podcast version, you're going to pick the name because we want a changing perspective. And we could thank Brooke and her team for that. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. 
TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody, welcome. Samantha Crow is joining me here today, Manager of Science Education for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. That is PETA, P E T A. Write it down, go to PETA.org. You'll find a lot of information, but dissection. Uh, it, it sounds like such an odd word for us to be saying, Samantha. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, it's uh, it is very shocking to you know to to learn that this is still happening in schools across yeah. the world. You know, I mean, we're not even covering this in blockbuster movies anymore. But, you know, is there something we should know about this? Let's just break it down for everybody for a minute. What's wrong with this from your perspective? Uh, you know, I'm really glad that you asked that question. So animal dissection is outdated. You know, it's been happening for over a century. Uh, it's cruel and it's ineffective. It deters students from pursuing careers in science. It exposes students to carcinogens. And it's an inferior way to teach. So PETA is opposed to dissecting animals because it is deadly for millions of animals every year. And we know that animals are not ours to use. They are here with us, not for us. What is your view of the purpose of this now in schools? What, what, what is happening with this? Is it the same kind of like old school thing is, okay, let's figure out where the heart is? I mean, I don't know. Help me out here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it is. It is simply, you know, in some cases, it is just, you know, curiosity driven. Um, mm -hmm. You know, most often I hear, you know, teachers saying that, you know, at the end of, you know, like culminating, say, a lesson, you know, on uh, organs and, you know, body systems and that sort of thing, that, you know, after the grades are all turned in, then they just have this, you know, quote unquote, fun activity of, you know, cutting apart a frog or a cat mm -hmm. or a fetal pig at the end of the lesson. And, you know, mm -hmm. so, so in, in some cases, you know, the, the, uh, the actual dissection is not even assessed, you know, but, but getting down to the educational benefit to students of using humane non-animal methods, um, you know, we just published, I, I just co-authored co a study, um, a systematic review paper that was published in the American Biology Teacher Journal. And the systematic review showed that in 95% of studies, students at all educational levels scored as well as or better in most cases when they use non-animal methods compared to dissecting animals. You know, medical schools no longer use animals for dissection. So clearly middle and high school students don't need to dissect animals either. Yeah. I mean, I look, first of all, congratulations on the article. It is a much needed article. And thank you for bringing science to the top of the, you know, I like to say to the top of the chain of events here, because, you know, my gosh, right? I mean, we are using digital 3D, 4D, we're using this for so many things. And, you know, kids are drawn to this, right? You know, they are drawn to the digital world. I think most of them are born with the cell phone in their mouths, most of them now, <laughs> right? Um, and so it seems a little archaic, but can we take a moment for a minute? I want to talk about your research. When you are pounding the pavement and you are talking to educators, what is their response to you? You know, you, you never know what is going to ring true for someone. You know, for some administrators, um, it is the cost savings. So, you know, purchasing software, you know, can, I don't know, you know, whatever, uh, can cost, you know, a few dollars per year or a couple hundred dollars per year for the whole school. You know, whereas like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars are spent on repeatedly purchasing animal cadavers you know, and dissection supplies and that. So again, you know, you, you never know what's going to ring true. Perhaps it's the economic issues, you know, perhaps it's the ethical concerns, you know, maybe teachers have been 
um, you know, bombarded by requests from students to, you know, use humane non-animal methods instead of dissecting animals or, you know, students wishing to opt out. You know, it could also be the efficacy. You know, I find you know, the, the paper that we just studied, you know, or just published rather, well, and studied, <laughs> we had to study the literature to, to get the paper, but, um, but you know, it, even that, you know, shows the efficacy is outstanding with non-animal methods. Yeah. So there's really no comparison. So, yeah. you know, I, I hear a lot of different, you know, arguments, but, you know, our job is to explain it in a very, you know, easy to understand way for, you know, that, that anyone can, can not only appreciate that it's wrong, you know, mm-hmm. but also like, what can I do to help? You know, how can we get this out of schools for good? What we're talking about is a software, and let's just say it is a software. There's a program that makes this more real-like and yet shows things that you you wouldn't even want to look for in a you know traditional dissection. Can you talk about the solution? Can you talk about this software, please? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, most people who have had experience with dissecting an animal, you know, when they were younger have, you know, they, they were called the smell, you know, the how all of the yeah. organs were sort of monochromatic, you know, it's very difficult to, you know, to determine what you're even, you know, trying to, to find, right? So software has many benefits, right? It's less expensive than repeatedly purchasing animal cadavers and, you know, the supplies. It also allows students to repeat the material until they are proficient, right? If you just have a, a dead frog in front of you, you know, if you make the wrong cut, you know, oh, well, too bad, right? You know, you, you may not, you know, you may have, uh, you know, demolished some mm-hmm. organs that you thought you wanted to look at or something, right? And so, you know, with, with dissecting animals, students really only have one shot to make the right cut. But these software programs are aligned with science standards. They are very efficacious and really fun and interactive. Yeah. You know, look, I I just got much needed as an athlete. You could tell the wear and tear in my knees, but I recently just got both my knees replaced. And I'm telling you, my doctor didn't sit there with the scalpel. Um, this was... Uh, Put put his hands in the robot. It was, I call it a robot. It was a robot. It was a digital display. It was a whole new world. And, you know, by the time these children grow up, the technology around surgery, around understanding the body, around whether you're a veterinarian, you want to do that. I mean, the technology here, you know, it's not going to be for the few anymore. You know, this is going to be something that becomes standard in hospitals across the world. It's only a matter of time, isn't it? So aren't there educational benefits to learning the digital interface beyond the ethical conversation we're having? There absolutely are benefits, right? So exposing students to, you know, high quality technology at, you know, in K through 12 education will better prepare them Mm. for what they will encounter at medical school, right? So, you know, you, you were talking about your surgeon, you know, Your surgeon didn't wake up one day and just know how to, you know, operate the the model or the the uh, robot rather, right? You know, or how to operate on a person. You know how to. That's right. Children. I was not you know, his first. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, you have to be taught those skills, and and that is what doctors are using, and so that is what medical schools are using to teach. So then, why are we having high school students, you know, cut apart a frog, which is completely irrelevant? anatomy to humans. It's yeah. completely irrelevant. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I, I honestly think that we're doing a disservice to students by holding on to this, you know, archaic method, because this is not what they would see in higher education. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am you all are out in front, but I'm not surprised, Samantha. I'm not surprised about you and your background. And, you know, you work directly with the educators to replace this. You're out in front. You know, you're you have helped PETA's Teach Kind program. I mean, there's so much that you're out in front of. And it's clear to me that this is, you know, this is not just a chit chat for you and I. This is a passion for you. But I want to make sure everybody knows this one Folks, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, what's the big deal? What's a couple of thousand frogs? No, 10 million animals, right? And that's all you can count for real. 10 million animals are used for this. Um, Samantha, look, I know we have a lot to talk about, but what didn't we talk about? What would you like to share so that we can get people engaged, involved? And there's a way for them to participate also on your website, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So October coming up is cutout dissection month and there is something for everyone, you know, to do. We all can collectively help relegate animal dissection, you know, to the history books. Um, So, you know, going to PETA.org slash dissection, there are, you know, sections for students and how to get active and parents and teachers and how, you know, how to sort of engage, right? Students can always, you know, ask for a non-animal lesson, Parents can back their students up and also talk to their child's administrator and ask them to just embrace that humane science and end any lessons that involve animals. And community members, you know, your tax dollars go to these public schools, right? And some of them are used to purchase dead animals. If you don't like that, you should contact your local school district, you know, and just find out about their their policies on animal use and talk to them about, you know, not buying animals. Yeah. I also want to point out to everybody that, and really, this is not a show about this, but I want to say to everybody, uh, what I've learned about this is that there are grants out there that your schools can apply for. There are ways that you can really approach this and get the funding to make this change, Uh, because most of the cost is the upfront cost. And so what you can do is you can apply for grants, you can really look into this, but I think we're nailing this down, right? I think we're at the point now where schools are just not motivated to even do something. And I hope by what you're doing, Samantha, I hope by what you're doing, we can change that to say, get motivated. And if the schools won't get motivated, you as parents, please pay attention to what's going on in your school. Understand the emotional and psychological impact for some of these kids. Samantha, thank you for this. Um, What's the website and what's your personal message? What do you want to leave us with today? Well, it was truly my pleasure. You know, listeners can go to PETA.org slash dissection. Um, Also, teachkind.org is our humane education division. And we have tons of free lesson plans and worksheets and printables there online. But, you know, my my message would just be find, find the thing that is going to ring true when you talk about animal dissection. You know, what is their concern and then seek a way to, you know, elevate that conversation so we can change minds. There are so many teachers now who are actively using humane non-animal dissection methods, and we need to get to 100%. <laughs> and I just want to leave everybody with this because I want to give you the data. Cats are bought from pounds, rats and mice are bred in warehouses by the millions. Frogs and fish are taken from their homes in nature. And and just so you know, other 
The body parts of other animals like pigs, calves are shipped from slaughterhouses to middle and high schools, even though, even though, okay, medical students no longer use animals for dissection. 25% of students are vocally opposed to the practice. And trust me when I say that's a low number because most of them won't even admit it. This is really what we're talking about. Not 10,000, 10 million animals are used. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thank you for all that you do. And again, um, wow. Thank everybody at PETA for not giving up on this. Boy, this has been a long journey for all of you. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. Let's take a short break. Everybody pass the word and go to the website. You will see very vividly why we're doing this. 